Today on the Bill Kelly Podcast, there's been a lot of elbowing going on between the federal government and various provinces over who controls what. It's something Dr. Lori Turnbull, director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University, and I had an interesting discussion about. There's a cautionary tale for all municipalities out of Hamilton and the latest Lake of Sewage. We'll hear more from Chris McLaughlin, executive director of the Bay Area Restoration Council and an adjunct faculty member with the School of Earth, Environment and Society. At McMaster University. As well, a change may be coming to live entertainment. This after the Ticketmaster debacle with Taylor Swift tour. Musicologist Eric Elper has some interesting thoughts on that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts right now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. This is always a great way to start off a Monday. We're going to be checking in with Lori Turnbull, Dr. Turnbull, who's director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. And she's joining us today from Ottawa. Good morning, Lori. Good morning. How are you? Wonderful. Um, lots going on in Ottawa, but maybe we should start with um, some of the moves from Premier Daniel Smith and the sovereignty bill. Kind of feel like I'm getting a little bit of whiplash here. Oh, I know. What a weird thing. And I mean, um, I think for like, we kind of knew this was coming because in her leadership campaign, she was quite out front about how this is one of the strategies she was going to pursue. But it's so interesting to see it like in in legislative form, because now it's out there, right? It's, it's this is clearly their strategy for saying to Ottawa, look, we're tired of being pushed around. Um, we're going to take we're going to take action if Ottawa is interfering in what our jurisdiction is. On the other hand, so many people have taken issue with so many parts of the bill that, as you say, now she's kind of going back and forth. And it's like, well, hold on. Like, if you're going to take out these parts of the bill, what would be left of it? And what's the point of doing it if you're going to take out these things that would give cabinet the extra power? So I don't know. Now they're on the defensive rather than being able to pursue a clear message around what they're doing. Well, and it's also interesting. I mean, when you put something out that's called a sovereignty bill, and then, you know, you're getting all of this uh, feedback and, and there's the controversy over it. Then you come out and say, well, you know, we don't get everything 100 percent right. If you're going to drop a bill of this magnitude that basically is drawing a line in the sand between Alberta and Ottawa, maybe you should have more ducks in a row. Well, I agree with you 100 percent. And I mean, it's one thing to say, yeah, there were a couple of mistakes in our press release or something, which is actually hard to to fathom itself. Things are so many times double and triple checked. But the idea that you had legislative drafters work on something, and that's gone through a series of approvals. And the premier herself brought it to the House and introduced it on the floor, and it passed. Like, come on, like pass first reading. The idea that there are mistakes in your bill, there are processes to make sure there are no unintended aspects of a bill. So it's like, where did this get off the rails? And so was what is you got to wonder like what is the purpose of this? Was this always a bit of a trial balloon to see how people would respond to it, or did they really think people weren't going to take issue with these parts of the bill that would essentially reverse the logic of responsible government? And so I don't know like I'm and I still don't know again like if they start switching it around, and if it goes through amendment to the point that it will be watered down, you know, I mean, to the point that there's nothing left to it. Well, then what would be the point of passing the bill? 
And the feds are already saying we're not interested in being pushed around by this, right? Like, we'll wait and see what happens. Yeah, well, uh, the latest thing that she is walking back and, well, let me just check the clock now. It's about 12 minutes after the hour. So, you know, there could be something else that she's walking back right now. But uh, the the part right now is uh, the power to rewrite laws, her cabinet having the power to rewrite laws behind closed doors without legislative approval. Yeah, I mean, that's responsible government. Like, this is a fundamental constitutional principle. And I know I sound like an, you know, old angry teacher right now, but come on, like, you can't just pass a law that says we're not going to do this anymore. There would be so many issues if they actually got this through the House, which I don't even know that they would. But if they did, it would be snagged in court so long and by so many different people for so many reasons that I don't even think the feds would ever have to respond to it as a piece of legislation because it would just get pulled apart in so many ways before that. But I mean, is now she's sort of saying like, this isn't really what the bill was about. Well, yeah, but then what was it doing in there? Like, what was the process? I think she's inviting a lot of questions about, okay, show us how the sausage was made then, if you think it's been made wrong. And how did that happen? And you're the premier. Like, ultimately, this is all on her doorstep. And it's going to be interesting to see how the caucus, how the party at large do or don't come to her support, because it seems to me this is something that's going to be driving a lot of wedges in the party when you really start breaking things down. To ask a true conservative, do you think we should reverse, again, the logic of responsible government to empower the cabinet in a way that it's unchecked? A true conservative is not going to think that. So she's, I don't know, this, this seems to be inviting a lot of problems they don't need. Well, it could lead to a a constitutional question before the high court. Oh, exactly. And I mean, it would be that would all be, you know, from the perspective of someone who studies political science, absolutely fascinating to see the courts go through um, just exactly why this is unconstitutional, because responsible government is a constitutional convention. It's not something that's written down and courts typically don't like to get into the, the realm of conventions. And so it would be interesting to see how it would work. But I think bottom line is she still have to, has to get this thing through the legislature. And so now she's backing away from the parts of it that people are more, most upset about. I'm not sure how this is going to affect her. You know, it doesn't do anything positive for her political credibility. It occurs to me that there are some people in the party who are supporting this as a kind of strategy, right? And a lot of people have talked about this. Like, this is a way for us to pick a fight with Ottawa and sort of build up our our financial coffers and build up our confidence kind of thing and go in swinging to the next election, which they're poised to lose. Or for some people, this could be a way that they actually want governance to work. So it's sort of this institutional like question around how we really do business. And there are other people who are prepared to sacrifice the integrity of parliament and parliamentary accountability and government accountability, just so that you're able to pivot on a dime and respond to whatever you think the federal government is doing that's potentially harmful to Alberta. Like the wording of the thing, the ambiguity of federal intrusion and all the things that this could cover. It's like, you know, Trudeau gives a press conference about, about how he's going to change gun laws. It's possible there's going to be cabinet action from Alberta. Like it's, it's just kind of wild. 
We have Dr. Lori Turnbull in with us from the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. And I'm so glad I have a chance to talk to you this morning because this is something that's really been pinballing around in my head for the last several weeks about a number of different trends in this country, mostly within the provinces, including Ontario. Uh, And as we know, they want to expand provincial reach in some areas like the More Homes Built Faster Act that's opening up the Green Belt or Bill 124 that's been ruled unconstitutional. It seems like there's a lot of elbowing going Going on between various provinces and the federal government over who has control over what. I agree 100%. We seem to be in a period of intergovernmental relationships that's very tumultuous, that has a lot of elbowing, as you say, right? Different provinces are taking very different tactics, too. Like, on the one hand, um, you've got provinces like Alberta, Ontario, who are clearly looking to fill their jurisdictional space and don't want to be pushed around by Ottawa. And that, you know, if, if that leads to some conflict, they seem to have some, some, you know, capacity and some tolerance for that. And on the other hand, you have provinces like, you know, in Nova Scotia, for example, where the mood overall has been far more conciliatory. And I wonder, like, part of this might be, how, you know, it's just the time. It's just the fact that a lot of issues around spending and some of the really big ticket items like, you know, how to fix health care, how to expand housing. Those are major issues that are within provincial jurisdiction, but this federal government has really tried to get involved in. And so it could be in some ways a lot of these issues are sort of coming to roost at the same time, which then creates a level of conflict no matter who the political actors are. But on the other hand, it could be very well attributable to the political actors themselves, too, because Justin Trudeau and this liberal government seem to be quite interested in playing in provincial jurisdiction, whether it's health or housing or, you know, different expanding the the social safety net to get more involved in people's lives. They seem to have an appetite for that. And the way they've dealt with the provinces has always been one-on-one. And the provinces have complained about that. We don't want to meet together. Sorry, the the federal government doesn't want to meet us together. They want to meet us one at a time. So it could be that this is some implication of the tactics that the liberal government has used. The provinces are now kind of used to being dealt with one-on-one. And so they're trying to build their capacity as singular actors rather than working together. So they all end up in separate fights with the federal government over separate things, which is not <laughs> probably not an amazing spot for the federal government to be in. But Dominic LeBlanc seems to be keeping a cool head. He's the intergovernmental affairs minister. And he's saying, hey, look, you know, we're not going to get exercised about this. And they, they're trying to, to keep taking that position of authority because they've got the, they've got the bigger purse. There's no question. Well, and we just had the, uh, the, the health minister's conference, which ended in no agreement at all. And, and so that was kind of a disaster as well. Yeah. I mean, that was, I think both, you know, both sides of that would say the other was at fault essentially for bad faith, for showing up and not really having a desire to make something work. And I mean, like, Healthcare is one of those things we've been having the same sorts of conversations over and over again. It always has to do with some mismatch between financial capacity and the jurisdiction to actually do something. It has to do with which side actually knows what they're doing when it comes to making decisions about healthcare. Is there a role for the federal government in setting what we would call a national standard? Or is that an overreach on their part because it's really up to the provinces and they know best? how to deal with healthcare because they're, they're on much closer to the ground than the federal government in those cases. But it seems to me if we, seem, if we keep having the same sorts of fights and we keep using the same tools to try to solve problems, there is that kind of like, you know, that definition of, you know, you keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. That's not awesome. Like eventually you've got to kind of change your tactic. 
And so I wonder if we're getting to a point where we really have to be thinking differently about how we go about intergovernmental collaboration, because these major issues like health, housing, you know, they're not getting solved. Well, I know that the they say that um, doing the same thing over again, expecting a different outcome is supposed to be the definition of insanity, but it really sounds like the definition of government. Oh my God, that's so scary. That's such a <laughs> terrible way to start Monday morning, but I like... <laughs> It's, you know, it's, it, it's why people get very frustrated. And I mean, to kind of connect back to the institutional question we were talking about with respect to responsible government, there's going to be a lot of people who look at this bill. And I think Jagmeet Singh is kind of onto something here when he says, Albertans don't care about this. This is not where their minds are. They care about their health system. They care about making ends meet, getting through the holidays. They're heating their house. Like, no one wants to talk about this crap, about the difference between you know, where, like the, where the power is between cabinet and the legislature. This is not top of mind for people. But it's, it's an interesting time for governments to be pushing through these institutional questions that are fundamental, that would change everything. But people, you know, aren't necessarily thinking about those institutional realities and how they connect to policy outcomes and therefore their real life. You know, and so if we don't stay mindful and we don't stay you know, really protective, strong guardians of the institutions we have, we could see them crumble away. And we see that in the U.S. as well. This is not, this is not apart from that. This is an attack on an institution. I know I'm just full on melodramatic here, but I don't care. This is this is really important stuff that's happening. Well, you know, we'll have a discussion on this again, I'm sure. Dr. Lori Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Thank you for your time. Anytime. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The city of Hamilton is dealing with another sewage problem. This one, 26 years in the making. And it was dumping waste from 50 properties into a combined wastewater pipe leading to Hamilton Harbor. This is Nick Winters, Hamilton's director of water. There's always risk with a combined sewer system of a spill occurring because of the age of the infrastructure or sewer buildups and things like that. It's how quickly can we catch them. And uh, that it really serves as a cautionary tale for a lot of municipalities because Winters has also said, you know what, this quite likely is happening in other places, not just in Hamilton, but in other municipalities as well. Joining us now is Chris McLaughlin, who's the executive director of the Bay Area Restoration Council. He's also an adjunct faculty member with the School of Earth, Environment and Society at McMaster University. Good morning, Chris. Morning, Shana. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. What was your reaction when you heard this story? Well, of course, it's uh, it's disappointing that another story like this comes out about leaks into the into the harbor from the sewer system. But I would agree with uh, with Nick that we have been playing catch up with sewer um, issues for more than a hundred years in Hamilton, and you know, two steps forward, one step back. This is a Unfortunately, when we take a step back like this, it captures the public attention and uh, for good reason, right? Sewer overflows are are disgusting <laughs> and hopefully they can be uh, cont- further contained in the future. But um, not surprising, but uh, I think that there's lots of, uh, of positives to talk about in the context of this story as well. I would love to hear some positives because you know what? I really haven't heard many. <laughs> So 
If you'd asked me three years ago before the Shidok headline about the 24 billion liters, I, what should the city be doing? I would have said that the city should be doing a number of things that they've taken the initiative for already. Um, even though they were ordered by the Ministry of, of Environment to clean up the spill, um, they've done more than just address that order from the ministry. They've gone further upstream in Shidok looking for um, other problems to remediate. And in this case, um, the, the new mayor and the new council have been very transparent responding to this issue publicly and um, doing so immediately, which is a very good sign. Um, the mayor called for uh, a, a, an audit of the sewer system, which we think is a fantastic idea. Um, my perspective is to try and ta always take a, a view of the bigger picture, try to get a perspective on the issues that we're reading about. So obviously 30, 337 million liters is a very big number. But the harbor is also a very big place. And so a spill like this, creates, you know, unfortunate conditions, but it doesn't return us, you know, to the 1950s, for example. It doesn't get us this national reputation. And again, I'd agree with Nick, Nick Winters that this is a problem that many old cities in the Great Lakes are facing all across Ontario is, is these combined sewers, and we're always at risk, like he was suggesting, we're always at risk. What I'd really like to see is um, support for the, the city's initiatives, looking at the whole system, trying to be proactive in seeking out further uh, remedial actions that we can take to take to to improve the sewer system, to better monitoring of these conditions and fewer spills in the future. I think your point of uh, taking a look at the bigger picture is one that's really well taken, because if we didn't look for a solution to the problem of Randall Reef, uh, which was one of the most heavily polluted areas in all of Ontario, and, in, uh, you know, it's just on the other side of the bay, um, you know, if we didn't look for a solution there, that would still be a problem. Randall Reef's a good example because... That was a 20-year process from the first public meetings to look at possible solutions until we actually had shovels in the ground and we had that material contained. And even still, people continue to make the point that it is somewhat of a, of a, a compromise, right? There is no perfect solution in, in dealing with these ongoing problems. Sewage is going to always be an ongoing problem and trying to deal with it in in an old system, in an old city like Hamilton, is always going to be a challenge. And as the new council is going to find out, there are a lot of baby birds in the nest, so to speak. There are a lot of places that are going to need council's attention, going to need the city's resources. Sewage obviously is a very important one, but far from the only thing that's going to need attention. And they've already been dealing with these sorts of issues, um, being how to pay for upgrades to infrastructure, for example, um, in the first couple of weeks of this new council. So the, the challenges are going to be there and the city is absolutely going to need senior governments, the province and the federal government um, to upgrade the sewer system, to undertake the kinds of uh, the audit that the mayor has been talking about. The, and thankfully the province has already hinted at the fact that they acknowledge that, uh, that that's going to be the case. So we're really hopeful that some of these um, major advances can be made, like an undertaking of looking at the whole system and trying to prioritize. This is the work I should 
I should tell your listeners, this is the work of many people in the remedial action plan over the last several years is trying to get a handle on what still remains to be done and how do we prioritize those issues in a way that brings a collective focus to those things. That's really what's going to be needed if we're going to get senior governments involved in funding things that the city just can't afford. Um, and so it's really important that we undertake these processes now because given your example of Randall Reef, they take a long time to implement. So I would just warn as, you know, in terms of trying to get some perspective that I don't imagine this is the last time that we hear about one of these systems that sewers in Hamilton can date back to the 1800s in some cases. And we've just never had the full business case uh, for sewage, for capturing sewage in Hamilton. It's always been an uphill battle. And I, what I would say, I suppose, is just one of the thing about how unfortunate this is, that the city is, a, is, is undertaking some testing right now of what's called tertiary treatment. It's like the, the best technology that you can have in a wastewater treatment plant. And Hamilton is about to, to get the, uh, to see the, the, the impacts in the environment, the positive impacts in the environment from having really good wastewater treatment down at Woodward Avenue for almost all of the sewage that's the vast majority of the sewage that's produced across the city. And this is happening at exactly the same time that this relatively minor or non-insignificant spill is, is grabbing the headlines, right? So we've got this many millions of hundreds of millions of dollars have gone into this new technology that the, the entire bay is going to benefit from. Water quality across the harbor is going to benefit from Everyone in the remedial action plan is really excited to see this happen. And yet we have these stories of uh, capture, these negative uh, headlines capturing public attention, which which is uh, can be a can be a useful thing. But at the same time, I'd really like to point towards the future and trying to marshal that public enthusiasm into taking the next steps. How are we going to take the next steps to make things even better than we have over the past several decades? We're speaking with Chris McLaughlin, who's executive director of the Bay Area Restoration Council. One of the questions I've had, Chris, is could this um, latest discovery help to explain some of the perennial problems with green-blue algae that we've seen in Hamilton Harbor near Pier 4? Certainly, uh, it doesn't help. And there is a historical element to uh, the nutrients that that, um, that cause the blooms as well. And that's not, I suppose that's just to say that there is no silver bullet to solving that problem. And the thing that's important, I think, in the context of algae in the harbor is to remember that this isn't a problem that's particular to Hamilton Harbor. It's actually a problem that's been increasingly found in water around the world, problem that's probably going to get better, uh, sorry, it's going to get worse uh, under climate change futures where there is more intense heat in the summertime. The harbor is a place that holds on to its water. Water is hangs around in the harbor for extended periods of time. We don't have the luxury of having it washing out to sea like places like Kingston. If they have a similar sewer overflow, for example, another old city on, on Lake Ontario with a combined sewer. So the problems that feed the algae in the summer come from a, uh, a number of different sources. And, and again, there is no one single thing that's going to help. Although 
come back to the improvements to the wastewater treatment plant, I expect that when those are fully online, we're going to see improved effluent from the treat from the treatment plant. That means the sewage that gets treated at the plant and then is released out into the east end of the harbor. We expect that the water, the quality of that water is going to be vastly improved and, and should help the overall problem. But it's one that's again, it's one that's going to persist for quite some time. People are going to have to get used to that. And it, that's the context for trying to make further advances, trying to make more inve- get more investment in remedial actions in the harbor. Because it's, diff- it's difficult because these investments have been made over several decades now, and people want to know, we, you know, when is it? When are we going to achieve that ultimate goal? Unfortunately, that's a really hard thing to forecast. But we have to keep doing the next best thing, the next. Uh, important priority, or we're never going to realize them at all. Well, hopefully other municipalities will take the responsible bottom line out of this cautionary tale. Chris, thank you for your time. It was my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Chris McLaughlin is the Executive Director of the Bay Area Restoration Council. He's also an adjunct faculty member with the School of Earth, Environment and Society at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There was a storm of controversy over Ticketmaster and the way it handled the release of tickets for the Taylor Swift tour. It crashed the system and fans are not happy about the concept of surge pricing. To find out more, we're tapping on one of our musicologists, Eric Alper. Good morning, Eric. Good morning. This is um, now I know for for people are like, well, this is for shows in the States. She hasn't announced the Canadian tour yet. So this is going to be um, a little bit of a sneak preview of what people can expect to uh, to deal with when trying to buy tickets for one of the biggest music stars on the planet. Well, absolutely. But that having been said, there's also a lawsuit that's been launched by uh, the Swifties, the Taylor Swift Army. Yeah, two dozen Taylor Swift fans filed a suit against Ticketmaster and Live Nation claiming that um, for fraud, for price fixing and antitrust violations, alleging that their intentional deception, their quotes, allowed scalpers to buy the tickets from the majority of bots and scalpers. So because Live Nation pays the artist to perform in the venues, the venues are owned by Live Nation, and those venues have a exclusive deal with Ticketmaster to sell tickets. It's Ticketmaster is still the best method on the planet to deal with the amount of, of tickets and shows in the thousands thousands every single day. Um, but for this one, though, um, Taylor Swift fans are claiming that more than three and a half million people registered for the verified pre-sale, which is supposed to prove that you're human and not a robot. And that two million tickets that day went on sale, um, but that immediately after they were allowed to get in, surge pricing took effect. So those tickets that were, say, $120 were now available for $3,500 or $2,000. And they said that these fans are saying that there's no there's no other concept to go after. There's no other form of competition. So therefore, Ticketmaster and Live Nation have a complete stranglehold on the music industry. Well, in some ways, isn't Ticketmaster creating the Hunger Games of ticket buying? Um, Well, you know, Ticketmaster is normally just 
And Ticketmaster is nothing more than a front for the artist. The artist knows absolutely 100% full well how much tickets are going to go for. They have to agree to something like this before it goes on sale. So when Ticketmaster allows seats to go for $5,000 or $10,000, the artist is absolutely under the impression that that is what is going to take place. And we see surge pricing in so many other avenues of our lives. If you try to buy an airline ticket with three hours notice, it's going to be 10 times higher than if you would have bought it, you know, four months ago. Or if you go to the supermarket, try buying, you know, a bag of lettuce right now at $11 when it used to be $4, not even a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, the fact that this is ending up into the music industry, it just tugs at people's heartstrings because it has to do with the arts. It has to do with something personal. Um, and that's why I think that it's, it's kind of creating this kind of noise out there. I wanted to circle back to something that you had said uh, just a few moments ago, um, that Taylor Swift had to know what was going on. But, well, that doesn't mesh with her public statements about this. Yeah. And and here's the thing. Ticketmaster is there essentially to to take the blame and take the heat and take all the bad stuff about the... Um, from the artist. Bruce Springsteen has come out and said that, yeah, why shouldn't I get all that money um, instead of the scalpers? Why should I leave money on the table? If tickets are being valued and sold at $10,000 for the first row, why shouldn't the artist get that? I think what Taylor Swift was trying to say is that they, is that she's claiming that Ticketmaster knew potentially the demand of her fan base, knew how emotional they were going to get, and Ticketmaster was able to deal with the amount of traffic. What Ticketmaster said in their defense, and I kind of believe them, is that they gave out X amount of code somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 million, but something like 13 and a half million people tried to bypass that system, causing a complete shutdown of the website. So people that shouldn't have even been on the site um, because they weren't supposed to until the public pre-sale a couple of days later, um, tried to jam and get on the, the on that system. So I, I, I'm not surprised that Ticketmaster might have not been able to handle 13 million people all c- trying to come on. I mean, my website can't even handle 100,000, <laughs> but we're going to prove that right today. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, you know, I, I think Taylor Swift, I'm not calling her a liar by any means, but I think that Taylor Swift specifically has a very great method to make sure that she is protected at all costs. And that is exactly what her team and her label and her management company um, is paid to do, is protect the artists at all costs. And Taylor Swift is very, very good at making sure that there's no, there's no dirt on her. Uh, we're speaking with music and entertainment aficionado Eric Alper about the lawsuit that's been launched by some fans of Taylor Swift with regards to um, the surge pricing that has happened and, well, really the crash of the Ticketmaster website uh, because of the demand for tickets to her concerts. Um, and I'm wondering, you said that it was about two dozen that have filed this suit so far. Um, I have a feeling more are going to join that because once the once one Swifty goes, they all seem to go. Yeah, and and I'm not so sure it's going to go anywhere. I I think that the media is absolutely going to talk about it. I'm going to be fascinated by this and absolutely follow it along. But when you have U.S. senators, um, you know, on their on the fan side, that's marvelous and that's wonderful. But for decades, the U.S. 
um, political system has tried to figure out how to break antitrust violations, and they just can't. Um, the last major corporation that was forced to kind of split up like this in this manner was IBM back in the late 1980s, and it took decades for that to happen. In fact, you know, it started back in 1939 with IBM, and that's free computers. That was when, you know, these companies were just minuscule compared to what they are now. So when you hear politicians trying to do something about this, um, I, I'm kind of thinking that is more grandstanding. There's already rules in place. Ticketmaster and the police and most provinces have a law that say that you can't sell a ticket for more than it's worth on the ticket price. The only problem is, is that sometimes, you know, in these shows, Ticketmaster does not reveal what that ticket price is. So, you know, it's just a free market system. So if the police and the law want to do something, it's already on the books. Um, but for some reason, you know, they don't feel compelled to do anything about it. So we get more grandstanding, more this and more that. Well, you, you mentioned the free market system, and I kind of get that. But isn't this a collision of ideologies? I mean, on one hand, you have the free market system. But on the other, I mean, what about fair play? Well, it all depends on what your fair play version is. You know, there there's a thought process out there for years that artists have been doing this a little bit wrong. Um, when you take a look at somebody like Garth Brooks, who played at the Calgary Stampede a couple of years ago, uh, right before COVID hit, um, he priced all of his tickets at, I think it was 23 five or fifty dollars wherever you sat and he played for 10 straight nights that's i think the way to do it because this way then what you do is you limit the amount of people who can't go to the show and therefore you cut off the noses of the scalpers who are trying to make a resale market out of really nothing because everybody who wants to go to the show can potentially buy a ticket. The other idea is that um, as an artist, you have complete control over that venue. So don't sell those, those tickets to the secondary market or price them for what it's worth. If Beyonce knows that she can get $15,000 per ticket for the first row, because that's what the data is telling her, then sell the tickets for $15,000. Don't sell them for the same price as the 100 or the 200 section, you know, and that will eliminate the secondary market because those people that are willing to pay that price aren't the ones that are going to be reselling it. And you cut off the idea of the potential loss from scalpers who don't want to spend $10,000 in hoping to make $2,000. They want to, you know, buy something for $60, $100 and sell it for $400. They're not in the business of taking risks, which is why that they like the low prices. But, you know, maybe it's time that we do start to see tickets at a couple of thousand dollars. Well, I, I think it's interesting because that was one of the questions that I had for you. I mean, with surge pricing, what's even the point of setting a ticket price in the first place? It's like an opening bid. That's exactly what it is, which is why if you try to get a ticket for something um, specifically for concert, you have no idea how much those tickets are. They used to be able to tell you that, you know, tickets were going to be $68.50 plus service charges. Now they've eliminated that. And there's a number of politicians who do want Ticketmaster forced to revealing what the prices are, what each of the service charges are and how much 
um, those surge prices are going to back to Ticketmaster. But, you know, it's pretty expensive to run Ticketmaster and, you know, they get a piece of it. The venue gets a piece of it. The artist gets a piece of it. So they have to make their money somehow. You know, this it's, you know, for a lot of these artists, um, no matter how wealthy you are, if you're Ed Sheeran or Drake or, or Taylor Swift, they really haven't made a lot of money compared to what the world demand is over the last three years. So I've got a lot of sympathy for them. I'm, I'm completely okay. You know, with the idea that just because you want to go see Taylor Swift doesn't mean that you deserve to go see Taylor Swift. Sometimes you just can't afford it and there's nothing wrong with that. Well, you know, I mean, if anything, this may have an equalizing effect, because the last time we spoke, we were talking about how time was you had the album and the tour supported the album. Now it Mm. seems like you have the tour and the album supports the tour. And for fans who can't afford these incredibly high ticket prices, it may make the album even more important now. Yeah, or that it opened up new marketing ideas for record labels and artists to do what Bob Dylan did um, a couple of months ago, right in the middle of COVID, is that he sold $25 online tickets to an exclusive concert that didn't have an audience. So, um, you know, the ability to diversify is going to be something that artists are going to continue to do, even that the world is opening up slowly and slowly. You're going to see more autobiographies being written, including a brand a new one from Bono from U2 who, you know, he would be one of the last people to write something. Um, So you're going to see more autobiographies written. You're going to see more um, documentaries for artists um, on Netflix and, and streaming services. And you'll probably see online concerts being part of the marketing plan. Um, And of course, you're going to see, you know, 15 to 20 different configurations of that of that new album like Taylor Swift did and like BTS did one of the biggest groups in the world. They had different versions with different songs, with different covers and different little, you know, trinkets inside all depending on where you bought the album, kind of forcing fans to prove that you are such a big fan. You own all 20 of them. Meanwhile, it just costs you like $20,000 to get all 20 of them. Yeah. But uh, you bring up a good point there about online concerts because BTS sort of tried that out with there, I guess it's the we've got to take a pause for a few years because we have to yeah. do military service. Goodbye concert. Yeah, and 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 it grows something in the neighborhood of millions and millions and millions of dollars um, for that. So there is absolutely demand for it, you know. And I know older people listening are saying, "Well, it's not the same thing." And you know, you have to understand that, like these these brand new music lovers who are between the ages of say eight and twenty five years old, they're the next generation that are going to be you know ruling the the music industry if they haven't already. Um, they they may not be used to going to see concerts for you know for the last three years they haven't seen a concert so if you are 15 years old you've gone through the prime of your music life um not going to school or work but seeing some live shows um you're online more you're playing video games you're drinking less you're smoking less you're going out less so there's a whole generation of people who are completely fine with watching a concert on twitch not realizing to us that that might be a poor cousin to the real thing. They just may not even realize it. And worse, they may not even care. Well, uh, we are going to take a short break and we'll have to leave it there with Eric Alper. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon. Musicologist Eric Alper. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.